0: Well, I want to say at the outset that I'm super thrilled to participate in this uh, summer lecture series I want to commend the organizers of this series for putting this on which I think is a remarkable thing to do in the summertime and I'm deeply appreciative of the topic that you've chosen as well which is super timely Uh, Namely, what is truth? This is something that is, of course, hotly debated in our society, and I think it was quite creative to choose the Gospel of John as the lens through which one would explore the concept of truth. I have to protest being assigned this particular verse. (laughs) There are so many wonderful statements about truth that you find in the Gospel of John, and those... uh, are featured in this lecture series, and I was assigned the one about the devil. And so I imagine the organizers were looking at the list of potential speakers and wondering who they might get to speak about the devil, and I'm afraid I was chosen, perhaps because people thought I had special familiarity with the topic, and I hope that isn't the case. I do hope, however, that as we talk about the devil, and I will be talking quite a bit about him, that uh, we learn a little bit about who he is, not for the sake of learning about the devil, but in fact, to draw closer to the Lord Jesus Christ, to see the great significance of the coming of Christ, the great importance of surrendering oneself to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to be speaking uh, tonight about this verse in John 8, and I want to read as we begin from this uh, eighth chapter. And if you have Bibles uh, with you, Uh, Please turn to John 8. I'll read verse 31 to 47, and of course, it's in this section that we encounter the words, There is no truth in him. John 8, and I'm going to begin at verse 31, where Jesus is engaged in debate with the Jews. Earlier in the chapter, it's about who he is, and in this part of the chapter, it's who the Jews really are. Uh, John eight thirty one to the Jews who had believed in him Jesus said if you hold to my teaching you are really my disciples uh, Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free They answered him we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied very truly. I tell you everyone who sins is a slave of sin now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. I am telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you are doing what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you are looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God." Abraham did not do such things you are doing the works of your own father we are not illegitimate children they protested the only father we have is God himself Jesus said to them if God were your father you would love me for I have come here from God I've not come on my own God sent me why is my language not clear to you because you are unable to hear what I say you belong to your father the devil And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Can any one of you prove me guilty of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. This is the Word of the Lord. So, ah, wonderful. So I I don't have the clicker with me, so I'm just gonna like raise my hand to advance the slide. Is that helpful? Okay, here is the outline for my talk tonight, and uh, after some brief introductory remarks about the standing of truth in our culture, I want to look quite briefly at the Gospel of John in terms of a wide lens and then at John 8 specifically, in a narrow lens, and then put the microscope on that verse in John 8, there is no truth in him, and look at um, the devil, the father of lies, and then I'll conclude with some remarks about truth and paternity and some conclusions that we might reach uh, on the whole. So first of all, falsehood as psychological injury and this is where we're at today, where morality in some ways has been replaced by psychology. And uh, our brother Michael talked about the radical that he was as a Marxist, and of course Marxism opposed oppression. And in terms of history, what you, what you find is that uh, many traditional hierarchies were over time dismantled, and we can celebrate some of that. If you think about the emancipation movement and the freedom of slaves, the suffrage movement and the right of women to vote. But of course, uh, cultural Marxists believe that there's still oppression in the world today. In fact, that if you were to look at society, you could categorize everyone as either an oppressor or oppressed. But what the French uh, postmodern philosophers uh, did was they said we need to discern very carefully where we find oppression, especially in the Western developed world, and there was a number of philosophers who pointed out that we find it in language in particular. Language is being used by the powerful to subjugate other people, and perhaps just in terms of watching TV or reading the newspaper or dialoguing with people, you will hear people talk about words being weaponized, about the potential for speech to be violent, the need To police speech the need to restrict the freedom of speech in order to protect people who are marginalized in order to prevent marginalized people from being injured now this whole movement coincides with uh, something occurring simultaneously namely that feelings themselves become the moral norm and they Replace the previously existing moral standards and moral reasonings such that if you contradict my view of myself I am hurt and if you hurt me you are necessarily wrong if not Bigoted so you see how feelings have become the moral norm for people and to have your feelings hurt is to suggest that a moral wrong has been committed Okay, we can um, trace this in history with a little more detail. Now, Michael uh, recommended this uh, book by Carl Truman. Uh, I forget the title of it. Strangers to Ourselves, was it? No, that's a a different book. Um, Strange New World. Strange New World. I didn't read Strange New World, which is an abbreviation of a previously published book, uh, The Triumph of the Modern Self. But if you want to read The Triumph of the Modern Self, and it's probably in Strange New World as well, you'll be exposed to Philip Reef, which is an individual that Carl Newman relies on significantly for some of his own assessments. And uh, Philip Reif uh, traces the development of humanity through history in terms of, of these four Um, identifications. And if you look at the world before the time of Jesus and shortly thereafter, you might identify humanity as a political man. The political man finds his identity in the polis or in um, the civic realm, the political realm. That's where he would find his uh, dignity. Then you have the religious man who would identify himself in terms of the Middle Ages, in terms of affiliation with a religious community or the practice of religious rituals. Then, of course, you have the economic man. This is because of industrialization, where employment became important, earning an income, the whole medieval uh, system had been dismantled. The economic man finds his fulfillment and his identity in the economic realm. And then lastly, we have the psychological man, and this is where we are at today, where people find their identity not in the political realm, Or the economic realm or the religious realm but in the psychological realm and I think in many ways this is perfectly understandable if you just think of how much of our lives are lived in our minds there was a time when people would would move about the earth and where you know one would engage in manual labor and one would be moving one's body it's hard to imagine anybody not engaged in a lot of movement before industrialization at least but now many of us have sedentary jobs where we are, are just sitting and so much of our lives are lived in our minds this is what accounts in part for the rise of anxiety and depression people have too much time just to th- sit and think about life and we would be so much better off I think if we just kept busy it's really too big. I have four sons they're all grown now the youngest is 21 but in some ways, I envied those who grew up in the country where there were chores. But I think the best thing for a young man is just to keep busy doing things and to be tired at the end of the day and to fall asleep quickly. But it's not the way that uh, youth find life today. They are largely sedentary with a lot of time to think. Well, Philip uh, Reif, uh also organized uh, history in a different way, in a different book. This is, uh, in fact, from a series of books, uh, Sacred Order, Social Order, and he thought that we could conceive of history also in terms of multiple worlds. And though this evolution of worlds represents uh, progress in history, there is a sense in which these three worlds all exist simultaneously today and therefore account for culture wars. But there are first worlds where moral code is based on myths. If you think of the the pagan myths in times past, whether Greek or Norse or whatever, but people look to some kind of transcendent realm for moral order. Then, especially in the Middle Ages and the advance of Christendom, we see justice shaped by divine revelation. That's still true of so many Western countries. I mean, even in Canada, I think you can still swear in court with your hand on the Bible. Is that still the case? I've I not been in court for a while. Yes, it is. We have a, a, a clerk here for um, a, a, a judge. Yes, yeah, so you can still uh, put your hand on the Bible and, and swear an oath. You could probably do it in the Quran or some other sacred text. But all of that is an implication of justice shaped by divine revelation. In both the first world and the second world, we have a social order that rests upon a sacred order. We have an understanding of morality that goes beyond this world to the transcendent world, to a sacred order, to something that is external. Today, we live predominantly in a third world where morality is pragmatic. It is psychological, it is personal, it is subjective, and it is pragmatic, which is to say that the question People are often asking when faced with a moral dilemma is, how will this affect me? What will I feel if I do this or don't do that? And is there there the potential that I will cause harm for someone? Now you can think of how this is true just in terms of an issue like abortion, whereas before people would protest abortion on the grounds, that it's the taking of an innocent life, maybe embryonic, a very small person, but it's the objective violation of a moral order, namely, uh, it is an instance of murder. Whereas now the question is, uh, how will this affect the life of the mother? And if it disadvantages the life of the mother, well then that becomes grounds to favor abortion. You can think of this in terms of how marriage is being redefined. For centuries, and it really didn't matter if you were Christian or not, you regarded marriage as a permanent exclusive bond between a man and a woman, first and foremost for procreation. Uh, I made this point when I was speaking at a university not so long ago, and I was accused of being misogynist and patriarchal to allege that one of the purposes of marriage is procreation. It sounds positively Neanderthal to people today. But what you discover today is that marriage is viewed as um, a relationship that's premised on an emotional connection with somebody else, which is like a friendship but differs from a friendship only in terms of degree. Marriage, people uh, today see as basically just an extreme kind of friendship, a deep kind of friendship. But if that is the case, why would it need to be permanent? And why would it need to be exclusive? Couldn't you have multiple deep friends? So you see how uh, the, the, the evolution of the world, the development of the world, the changes within humanity have tremendous implications for our understanding of Ethics and morality as a whole so I want to look now now that we've uh, set the stage for some of the cultural questions to look at John's gospel and uh, what you find there is a lot of courtroom drama now I haven't been at the all of the previous talks I did come here last Wednesday to hear dr. Thompson and he pointed out uh, some of these facts that I want to share with you but if you read through the gospel of John it is striking how There's terminology associated with the courtroom that dominates the gospel in a way that isn't true of the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The noun witness, for example, occurs 14 times in John, compared to only four times in the synoptic gospels. That's... Matthew, Mark, and Luke combined. The verb to testify 33 times in John compared to two times in the synoptics. The verb to judge 19 times in John compared to six times in Matthew and six in Luke. The noun truth 25 times in John compared to seven times in the synoptics. The adjective truly 14 times in John compared to one time in Mark and one time in Matthew. So you see the dominance of courtroom language in the Gospel of John. Now there's a book that studies precisely this notion by Andrew Lincoln titled Truth on Trial, and the subtitle is The Lawsuit Motif in the Fourth Gospel. And Andrew Lincoln, who's a New Testament scholar, proposes, and I think with with a lot of ground, in in a way that's quite convincing, that the whole Gospel is about a cosmic trial and Jesus has come to announce this trial. And he's come to witness to the truth. And the question has to do with what is truth? Where do you find truth? Who has authority? Who has the right to tell people what to do? What is wrong with the world? And how can the world be redeemed? These very big questions are all at the heart of the gospel of John and they're presented in terms of of a trial, in terms of a lawsuit. Uh, Jesus himself in the Gospel of John identifies his very vocation in these terms, for this I was born and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. I came into the world to enter the courtroom of the world to give testimony, to speak the truth, to testify to the truth. Now what becomes particularly fascinating is About the Gospel of John is that while there's this overarching theme of the cosmic trial, there is in the subtext counter trials. Uh, The Jews put Jesus, so Jesus is putting the whole world on trial, but then you see the Jews putting Jesus on trial, and you see the Romans putting Jesus on trial. So, and all of this is then brought into the greater cosmic trial. Now, why do the Jews? Put Jesus on trial. Well, the Jews, if you read through the Gospel of John, accuse Jesus of numerous things. He's at times accused of being a false prophet. At other times, he's accused of being a blasphemer. At still other times, he's accused of being a lawbreaker, especially in terms of the Sabbath. And he's also accused of being a blasphemer. And that's, did I mention that already? Well, it's Jesus as a, as a blasphemer that we find in the uh, in chapter 8 of John's Gospel, in particular. And then there's the Roman trial. This is, of course, before Pontius Pilate, where the charges of treason and uh, maybe of being a king and uh, a rival to the Roman Empire. The consequence of this is judgment for the whole world. And we find that at the cross, in particular, the cosmic trial precipitates the counter trials generates this opposition which leads to this climactic conclusion which is the cross that jesus talks about in john 12:31 as the time for judgment on the world it is the hour when jesus is glorified and he says in john 16:33 to his disciples in this world you will have trouble but take heart i have overcome the world. Okay, now we're gonna focus in on John uh, eight in particular. Do you remember the TV show Maury Povich? Raise your hand if you remember Maury Povich. Shame on you for watching Maury Povich. I'm joking. <laughs> I watched it as well. You know, Maury Povich was one of those shows where you'd sit and watch and you'd say to yourself, I can't believe I'm watching this, but you would keep watching it. It was kind of interesting, right? But Moripovich became famous for doing these paternity tests, and he would always say the results are in you are the father or you are not the father. Well, that's the kind of test that we find in John 8. Now, this is quite interesting just in terms of the courtroom drama because there's a shift that occurs in John 8 where at the beginning of the chapter, it's the Jews who are in the place of the prosecutor, and Jesus is the defendant. And one of the questions that they're probing at the beginning of the chapter is, who is the, what is the father of Jesus? Who is the father of Jesus? And uh, we see this in several ways. If your Bible's open, you can read along or I can uh, read this for you. John 8, if you look at verse uh, 15, let me see here. 15. Um, Jesus says you judge by human standards I pass judgment on no one but if I do judge my decisions are true because I am not alone I stand with the father who sent me in your own law it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true I am one who testifies for myself the other witness is the father who sent me Uh, then they asked him where is your father So they're concerned in the beginning of the chapter with who the father of Jesus is, and there's some suspicion on the part of Bible scholars, I don't think this is quite true, that they were alleging Jesus was illegitimate. But then when you go to the second scene in John 8, then the question becomes who is the father of the Jews, it reverses, and Jesus occupies the place of the prosecutor. The Jews are the defendants. In the first part of the chapter, it's the Jews asking questions to Jesus, Jesus on the hot seat. But in the second part of the chapter that we are going to be concerned with, it's the Jews who are on the hot seat, and Jesus is probing with questions, and the question becomes, who is the father of the Jews? So we're getting closer and closer to the verse that's going to occupy our time here, uh, you see Jesus' level four charges against the Jews in John 8. He begins by saying, If you really were my disciples, you would be free. Oh, by the way, I, I got to tell you a pigeon story. How, how many of you were here uh, last week? Raise your hand. You remember the pigeon story? I've got a great pigeon story, too. Take that, Dr. Thompson. <laughs> Going to be outdone in pigeon stories. Well, how did uh, how did Pastor Bill do? Well, he didn't do that great, but he told a great pigeon story. I'd be happy if that were the final assessment. So this is related to the, the point I'm going to make, but I worked at a garden center years ago and in, in Mississauga, and we sold pigeons. It turns out there are people from different parts of the world that enjoy pigeons the way that we enjoy chicken. And uh, so we had all these pigeons locked up in the back of the yard, and people would come and purchase them, and we would... We would sell them. Well, we had this individual who would come by uh, the garden center routinely to buy bird feed. And when I say bird feed, he would buy these massive sacks of bird feed. He was quite wealthy. But he was always very bothered that we have pigeons locked up in cages in the back of the garden center. And so one day he said to us, I want to buy all those pigeons and set them free. And we said, well, we're less concerned about why you're buying things than that you're buying things and we'll happily sell you the pigeons. So we, we boxed up all the pigeons and we put them in the back of his pickup truck and he drove out into the country and set them all free and they all flew back to their cages. And we sold them twice. And I said to my boss, I think we're onto something here. This is this pigeon. This is a lucrative business. But isn't that a wonderful illustration of how we as Christians so often act where we're set free, but for every reason we want to go back into the cage. It really doesn't make any sense to be brought under sin if you've been delivered from sin, so why do you act as if sin is still dominant in your lives? How's that for a pigeon story? Now I don't even know where I am or what I'm supposed to be talking about. <laughs> ah, never slaves. I went from never slave to pigeons. We are Abraham's children, therefore never slaves. Jesus says, you learn from your father to kill me. They reply, Abraham is our father. Jesus says, if Abraham were your father, you would not want to kill me. Then they use a different tactic. We are not illegitimate children. God is our father. Then Jesus, if God were your father, you would love me. The results are in. God is not your father. You are children of the devil. And he is, of course the father of lies and there is no truth in him. The desire to kill Jesus reveals their spiritual ancestry. They're acting a little bit too much like their father and they're revealing their identity. Now the word Satan is Hebrew. It's a Hebrew word that means adversary. The word devil comes from a Greek word That means slanderer or accuser, quite interesting, even if you just think of the courtroom motif. Adversary, slanderer, accuser. He is a murderer from the beginning, uh, perhaps because he was behind um, Cain killing Abel or more likely because through him and his influence, death came into the world Um, and humanity was consigned to death because of sin. He is the sponsor of falsehood and deceit. He's the architect of death, just as Jesus is the architect of truth. He distorts the truth. Now here's where we're going to park ourselves for a little bit, and we want to talk about the devil, and I have the title for this slide, God's devil, which is the way that Martin Luther would describe the devil, and I think it's a nice way because it reminds us that the devil is subordinate to God, that whatever powers the devil has, they're not equal in any way to God. The devil belongs to God, was created by God, and in that sense is God's devil. And so I have three points here, and I'm going to park especially on the third point, but the first thing we can say is that he cannot govern, ultimately at least, And yet he forms a rival kingdom uh, called the kingdom of darkness or the dominion of darkness. He is called in Luke the prince of demons, has these personal spiritual fallen beings conscripted to sabotage God's work alongside of him. He's also called the prince of this world, is given this kind of language, not king but prince, is given this kind of language to demonstrate that he has a a kind of jurisdiction over people in the world that looks like a real kingdom, but it's not. Um, He has subjects, uh, those who are not Christians, those who have not believed in Jesus, have not surrendered to Jesus, are in some sense citizens in this satanic realm, this kingdom of darkness, this realm of darkness. He is methodical and he Operates systematically against God and not just on an individual basis. We discover in Scripture that he can work through entire families and, in fact, entire nations can be captivated by particular idols. And I think you could easily argue that our country is captivated by particular idols in a way that demonstrates that the devil's work is not just individual but has this kind of systematic, even at times, communal flavor to it Secondly, he cannot reproduce and yet he steals children, right? Right early on in the Bible we read about the seed of the serpent. Well, who are the children of the devil? How does the devil acquire children if he cannot reproduce? Well, he steals them from God. Because God is the creator of everybody. Everyone ought to be a child of God, but people are stolen by the devil. Whoever whoever does not follow Jesus follows the devil And In that sense can be considered a a child of the devil Um, And that's an expression right that's used uh, throughout the New Testament even think of the terminology of brood of vipers we find it in Acts and other places and when you Believe in Jesus when you entrust yourself to Jesus the Bible says you're transferred aren't you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the son God loves that's Colossians you change your citizenship and you make this movement from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son, God loves. And of course, Satan will do anything within his power to prevent that. Second Corinthians 4 4, Paul says the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel. You can also think of the parable of the sower, you know, where the The sower sows uh, seed along the path, and as soon as people hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. But then I want to spend most of my time on this last point. He cannot create, and yet he mimics and distorts. And I want to get back to these three things of demon possession, fortune-telling, and magic. But if we can advance a slide, and I'll deal with something a little more lighthearted initially. And this is that the devil has no story. So part of the claim that, that the devil has no creativity is that the devil cannot create any stories but that all the stories of the world are representations or distortions of the Bible story, that that people are almost incapable of writing stories that that don't, don't end up sounding like the Bible. Like, isn't it interesting, for instance, how so many fairy tales end with a wedding? And it's because the master story ends with a wedding Uh, I like, and I should probably be ashamed of this, but the movies of Woody Allen. And the interesting thing about Woody Allen is that he he has a a sense of family values that I would never agree with, but so many of his movies end with weddings. This this idea of wrapping up the story with uh, a commitment of love between two people. And of course, uh, C.S. Lewis had this idea in terms of the great pagan myths that, Uh, that ultimately they were stories about Jesus in some sense, these North uh, myths about a dying and rising God. But just think of, of some of the popular stories that you might be familiar with, the superhero stories, and see how close they are to stories of Jesus. The superhero stories, with the exception of Wonder Woman, are all about how one man rises up against evil in the world to defeat evil, and how the one man near the end nearly dies, but then comes back to life in some powerful way of vanquishing the enemy. That's the story of Superman. Interestingly, a lot of these uh, superhero stories also include unusual birth narratives Uh, Not quite born of a virgin, but Superman is born on the planet of Krypton, right? And before Krypton explodes, his parents send him to Earth, and he's adopted by the Kents and becomes the one man to defeat evil in the world. Think of Harry Potter. He's also the one man who rises up to defeat evil. He, too, has an unusual birth narrative. He is a wizard. His parents are killed by Lord Voldemort, the dark power. And he's put, of course, in the home of Muggles, the, the, not Dudleys, Dursleys. The Dursleys, but you think especially of that final book in the Harry Potter series where he knows that he must die in order for Lord Voldemort, the dark power, to become mortal. And so he does die, but then he comes back To Life it's the story of Jesus in some sense I don't know to what extent the author is thinking of the story of Jesus But in some sense there's something in us which wants to tell the story whether we are Christian or not Because in some way the master story gets mimicked because the devil has no stories. We'll go back to the other slide now now he cannot he cannot create and so he just mimics and distorts and in preparation for this, I'm going to see how long I'm talking. When am I supposed to end? Michael, is it 8: 30?: 8:30. 830, yes. 830. I think I can do this. You know, I was talking to a gentleman. Where's, where's Owen? Owen's in the back here. Uh, one of the greatest Dutch reform theologians is a gentleman by the name of Hermann Bavink. He has a four-volume systematic theology. Very expensive to purchase, but a good investment. That's my line with my wife. She's getting a little tired of it when she sees me spending money on books, and I keep saying, But it's an investment. And uh, she keeps asking about where the return is. And uh, it's hard for me to prove that sometimes, but I believe it's there. Herman Bovink identifies three areas where you see the mimicry of the devil. Uh, God is makes appearances in the Bible. They're called Theophanies. The greatest appearance is, of course, the incarnation itself where Jesus, where the Son of God becomes human. Then you have the gift of prophecy, foretelling and foretelling. And then in both all the New Testaments, you have miracles, these wonderful extraordinary events that kind of defy comprehension for God's purposes. And Bavinck says that in these three areas you find the three great evils of the devil, and they are in demon possession, fortune-telling, and magic. They are the mimicry of theophany, prof- prophecy, and miracles. And I want to spend a little time on each of these. First of all, demon possession. So not now the appearance, we go back, not now the appearance of of God to humanity, but the appearance of a demon or the appearance of the devil in some sense in a person. Now it's extraordinarily difficult for us to understand what exactly is meant by demon possession, but uh, synonymous expressions in the New Testament are having an unclean spirit Or having a demon. And if you're familiar with the New Testament Gospels and just think about the symptoms of demon possession, often they were things that look like sickness. A person is deaf or blind or mute. Sometimes, in the case of the the Gadarene demoniacs, uh, some extreme psychiatric disorders of of violence and anger and isolation and self-harm and so forth. And yet it's also quite clear that these symptoms are not merely physical, cannot be reduced to pathology or sickness because there's an evil intent. If you think of the father of the convulsing son, he realizes that That when the demon is active in his son, it's always near fire or water, such that the demon seems to want to kill the son by burning him or drowning him. And so he recognizes that there's an evil power behind the demon possession, and Jesus agrees. Then, of course, there's fortune-telling. And and here, I I think we can reflect on uh, fortune-telling and demon-possession together in a way that Um, shows us the relevance of all of this for us today. If you have your Bibles uh, with you, turn with me to Acts 16, and uh, we find these two things brought together in the New Testament in a way that I think is helpful for us to understand the mimicry of the devil, the distortion of the evil one, and the relevance of understanding that distortion for today. Acts 16, beginning at verse 16. Now, listen to this. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. Fortune-telling. She had earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. Fortune-telling demon possession. Now, at first reading you have to ask the question, why is the Apostle so alarmed and so agitated, and why did he think an exorcism was so necessary? She seems to be saying something quite innocuous. She seems to be saying something, in fact, true. She says, These men, the Apostles, are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Why wouldn't the Apostle Paul applaud that? Why wouldn't he hire her to do some of the work of promoting the work of the Apostles? Why is he annoyed and why does he see the need to exercise, to cast the demon out of her? This gets close to the close mimicry that the devil does in the world, because What you discover, if you do a little research, is that this expression, the Most High God, was first of all often used in Jewish texts to describe God, but it was also used in pagan texts to describe Zeus. And it was often used in texts to describe the Jewish God, who many identified with Zeus. So, Most High God, in that particular cultural context, was a reference to the one at the top of the pantheon of gods, the greatest of the gods. So, now it sounds a little bit different, doesn't it, if you were to hear, these are servants of the greatest god at the top of the pantheon, and... um, just a second here, who are, these are servants of the the greatest God of the Pantheon who are telling you the way to be saved. Now, the other uh, thing that I can point out is that the way to be saved might better be translated a way to be saved. Uh, The term save and savior and salvation were common in the first century Greco-Roman world, and there were emperors, for example, who were identified as saviors, who provided a way of salvation. It was a polytheistic world, a world where there are many gods and many avenues of salvation. And it's more than probable that people who heard this statement from this woman heard her say that these people are giving a way to be saved by the greatest of the gods of the pantheism. In other words, the message by this woman was syncretistic, a way to compromise the gospel, but also make it more palatable to the people of that day. Now, isn't that the way that the devil works? Uses language that we might readily agree with, but don't discern uh, the distortion that it is. This becomes uh, uh, perhaps more clear with the second illustration that I will use, namely one of magic, where we also find which we also find in the book of acts acts nineteen, because I think we 're always tempted aren 't we to embrace elements of the culture that aren 't um, that aren 't clearly opposed to the gospel We say, well, we can Pick that out of this culture, or this out of the culture, and we can we can work with it. Um, well, here you find something very interesting in Acts 19. I want to read these verses beginning at verse 11. Look at what happens here. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. Uh, And then listen to this. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together And burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. And this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Now you ask, why did they feel the need to burn their bad books? Couldn't they have been edited by the Christians? Or perhaps at least used as coasters for <laughs> coffee and teacups, but they were burned. They were burned. And that's because the way of magic is a way alternative to the way of Jesus, and the two cannot coexist. Magic was prevalent in Ephesus. It permeated the entire society. Uh, One's life in many ways was bound up in magic. Romance was associated with magic. Illness was attributed to bad magic and there were things like voodoo dolls and charm bracelets and these sorts of things. But faith in Jesus is not in spells and because Jesus and magic cannot coexist, The books had to be burned. Now, I I bring up this story because I think we need to ask ourselves the question, are there areas of syncretism in our lives where the devil is doing something but we may not see it for what it really is? We may have tried to accommodate it, work with it, when in fact we must deal radically perhaps even violently with it, to cut it out of our lives. Well, I'm going to conclude now. Uh, Truth and paternity. Uh, next slide. And some conclusions. It's seven minutes, how about that? Um, part of, well, perhaps the, the greatest solution to the reality of falsehood in this world is first of all the recognition that the devil has children and that those who uh, are unregenerate are in some sense offspring of the devil. What an unpleasant thought that might be, all of which undergirds the necessity for regeneration, the need to be born again, the need to have a different father the need to have new desires and a new outlook and a new ambition. And what the world needs is regeneration. Now, how, is, how are people going to be regenerated? You can turn to the thing. I'm, I'm dealing with conclusions here. Um, well, I think the gospel must be preached. I appreciated what Dr. Thompson said last time. He had, uh, in some ways, a diminished view of apologetics, and he said, well, if people can be reasoned into the kingdom, they can be reasoned out of it. I think there is a place for apologetics. I think there are tremendous arguments that one can make in favor of God and of the claims of Christ. But what's even more than apologetics is evangelism. The preaching of the gospel the means that God uses for hearts to be changed, for this transfer to occur from the dominion of darkness to the kingdom of the Son God loves. Uh, So people must be born again. Secondly, the gospel must be preached. Uh, Thirdly, Satan must be engaged in spiritual warfare. I think here we need to recognize that Uh, The battle that we are engaged in is a serious one and that he who opposes us is a strong one But that he who is in us is greater than he who opposes us But we need to take very seriously what the Bible says about spiritual warfare what the Bible says about putting on the armor of God and uh, Recognizing the evil that does oppose us Five minutes, let me conclude There's still a very real sense, isn't there, in which the Son of God is on trial in the world. And it's interesting that even after Jesus died and rose from the dead, and immediately prior to his ascension, Jesus, in commissioning his disciples, said to them, You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We are enlisted for this courtroom drama, or better, for this cosmic trial, to sit in the witness stand, as it were, and witness to the claims of Christ and the authority of Jesus. Who has the authority? Because... The authority for people in our day is inside them, right? Hence, be true to yourself, follow your heart, believe in yourself, choose your destiny, be yourself, be real. We can multiply the slogans. The fact is, your heart is not a reliable guide for morality. It's not a reliable guide for life when people, uh, unchurched uh, individuals engage me about this, I I like to pose the question, have you ever had a thought that you later recognized was wrong? Have you ever desired something that you later recognized was harmful for yourself or harmful for those? And only but thoroughgoing narcissists will dispute that. Our hearts are not reliable guides. And yet, even though we, we oppose colonialism, and imperialism. What we're left with is the imperial self, right? The self that is king, and that's the one to whom we look. And it is disastrous for people, and the society that we see with all of the sadness, the melancholy, the anxiety, the the depression, the fear is, I think, associated with this. And therefore, this is all the more A reason to witness to Christ and to his claims, to preach the gospel, and to see people in coming to Jesus also come to the truth. 828. Not bad.